I was doing an inverted flat spin and, and um, it didn't come out and I was getting lower and lower and I was moving the stick. I was trying to, trying to recover and I had trained for this emergency spin recovery um, and I'd taken a num- like about five hours of training in this before I, before I started doing it, um, flying this particular airplane. The training came to me. I heard my instructor's voice tell me, power off, take your hands off the stick full opposite rudder, and, you know, I recovered pretty low, and when I came into land, I, I kind of, the landing wasn't set up right, so I came back around and landed the second time, and when I got out of the plane, you know, my, my hands were shaking. And This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 167, The Legend of Aerobatic Flight, Patty Wagstaff, is on the show today. Hi, and welcome back to another Adventure Sports Podcast episode. This is your host, Travis. Today on the line with me is one of the aviation greats. If you guys know planes and aviation, you know the name Patty Wagstaff. Um, she is, you know, from my my interests in aviation and growing up loving airplanes, the, the name Patty Wagstaff was synonymous with Michael Jordan or uh, John Denver, you know, when it comes to, to that. So it's just a, a she's really a, a well-known woman in the community and uh, and has basically uh, managed to win herself many, many awards and recognition in aviation. Uh, she grew up in a family of aviators uh, after witnessing her father's career flying for Japan Airlines. Her interest in airplanes ultimately grew into a passion. Five years after receiving her pilot's license, Patty's desire to to fly aerobatics led her to the U.S. aerobatic team where she competed for 11 years. She's won three U.S. aerobatic national championships and has also been inducted into numerous aviation halls of fame, including the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Her extra 260 stunt plane was even placed uh, on the floor next to Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Vega at the Smithsonian Institute's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. She continues flying in her career as an airshow pilot, stunt pilot for films, aviation consultant, uh, and a flight instructor. She also operates the Patty Wagstaff Aerobatic School in St. Augustine, Florida, and she trains the next generation of aerobatic pilots. So, Patty, that was a long intro, but I swear I left out so much when I had to write that thing up. You have accomplished so much in life. Thank you. Thank you. So that's, thank you. That's really nice. I, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I I got my license more than 30 years ago and it's amazing to me when I think about it, that I've been doing aerobatics for 30 years now. So it gives you a lot of time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's, let's take the listeners back to the beginning. What is it that got you into flight in the, in the, the early days? I know that you grew up in an aviation family, like I explained, but there was a certain part of your, your career that, that got you into flying. Tell the story about how you ended up uh, deciding to get your pilot's license and, and how that went about in the first early days. You know, flying was something I always loved, and I always loved the fact that my father was a pilot, and it just seemed so exciting and glamorous what he did. And he flew in the days um, 
when, you know, when he was first flying for the airlines, he flew what they call non-scad. So they were these non-scheduled operators that would fly people or, you know, charters or cargo around. And, uh, they'd end up in places like Wake Island and Hawaii and, you know, all over the Pacific and in some really remote places. And they'd be stuck there sometimes for weeks. And, um, I always thought that seemed really exciting. Um, I don't know how he felt about it, you know, but, um, but, and then the, you know, the first vacation that we really took, um, was flying to Hawaii with my dad. The first vacation I remember when he was, he was flying the DC six that we flew. And, um, it was, it, it was exciting. I was, I was about six years old and, and, um, and then my mom would take me to the airport as, uh, later on, um, when new airplanes would come in, we'd go up to San Francisco International Airport and sit and watch at the fence and sit and watch the planes come in. So, so aviation was all around us and, and, um, I moved to Japan when I was nine years old. And of course we flew over there and with my dad and, um, it was, um, it was just a big part of my life and I loved being in the cockpit with him and he used to let me fly. He used to let me, he'd put me in the left seat. He'd get out. He'd he'd you know get out of the seat. Let me sit there. And um, mm-hmm. there was a co-pilot in the right seat, of course. And I'm ten, eleven years old, flying around. And um, he'd let me fly the plane. So as I got older, I um, I said I want to be an airline pilot like Dad. And they go, you know, um, honey, girls can't become pilots. And so um, it was I was right. It was right about that time, actually, when I was in high school, that women started to become allowed to be commercial pilots. And, but by that time I was going in different directions and, um, not really career oriented. So it was always in the back of my mind that I'd learned to fly. I, I moved to, um, we'd lived in Japan, then I moved to San Francisco, my parents moved to Alaska, and then I ended up moving to Australia for about five years. And it wasn't until I moved to Alaska after that in the late seventies that I started to learn to fly. And my first flight in a small plane ended up in a crash. That was, it was, <laughs> I was in a small town called Dillingham and I got a job as an economic development, um, coordinator and, um, I had to fly to different villages to talk to the village councils about what their economic development needs were. And, um, I said, well, how do I get around to the, these villages? And there's no roads. You have to fly everywhere. And they said, um, well, you just call one of the charter services. So I did. And on the first leg, after we landed, we picked up another guy. We had a load of mail in the back of the small airplane, a small Cessna, and we took off, and, and we didn't make it off the end of the runway. And um, it was pilot error. The the, uh, the pilot didn't use the full length on a soggy, muddy spring break-up runway. So we went off the end, and we flipped upside down, and there was fuel pouring out. And we got out okay. Everybody was fine. And that's really when I decided that I was going to learn to fly. Um, I said, this is, you know, I, this guy's an idiot. I can do better than that, and um, and so I started out in this little town in Alaska. And about that time, I met my future husband, who had a uh, Cessna, and so he started teaching me as well. And um, and then I hired him to fly me around to the villages. So it was it all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so for most people, crashing on their first flight in an airplane <laughs> or first uh, you know small airplane like that, that would probably. Uh, quench their their desire to to fly he said no i'm not getting another airplane no it's not for me but you decided to take the (laughs) the bull by the horns and and make it what you did instead of uh letting somebody else fly you around that's pretty cool yeah you know it's funny you know because i that's 
I really didn't start telling that story until a few years ago. I thought, oh, you know, to me, it was just something that happened. And um, I didn't have it in my bio and I didn't tell it when I was giving talks or or whatever. And um, and then I started telling the story and people have said that, wow, you know, I don't think I would have wanted to get in another small plane. But but to me, aviation was always a really safe place to be. Um, an exciting adventure, took you to great places. You know, we did a lot of traveling when I was a kid in Japan. And, of course, we had to fly everywhere. And so I had no fear of aviation. There was never – the word aviation and fear was never, you know, spoken together in my house. And and my parents also raised me not to have fear. They didn't want me to be afraid of anything. So it didn't occur to me to – to um to quit flying it just occurred to me that i could do better <laughs> yeah no doubt well what a neat opportunity that you got as a, a child for your father to be able to let you sit in that seat and fly like that i mean obviously it's not something that can happen today no. not on a commercial airline no it's not and sad yeah it really is i think so too well, and you obviously there's a lot of redundancy there. You know, there were, nobody was in danger in that situation, and they wouldn't be these days either. Right. But you, that gave you this taste of of what life could be like. And there was a story about you uh, circling Mount Fuji uh, in That's the true. in the airplane. Yeah, and because in on Japan Airlines, um, you know, Matt, well, in Japan, Mount Fuji is a sacred mountain, and um, so the honeymoon couples would often take this flight to Southern. Japan and the big thing for them was to see Mount Fuji together and um, my dad let me fly a plane load of honeymoon couples around I was about 10 or 11 at the time around Mount Fuji um, in this DC-6 you know it's not hard to fly a plane I mean I I couldn't have landed it I'm sure but but you know just to sit there and hold the controls and hold hold the wings level or make a turn it's not hard to do so even though they said you know women can't become airline pilots I knew it wasn't hard, and when I started learning to fly, and probably when I had that crash, I'm like, you know, I know I can do that. Um, you know, I know it's not something that, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the aerobatics piece of it. You didn't spend much time uh, after getting your pilot's license to really kind of jump into the whole twisting, turning, flopping around the sky thing. It was, what, five years after getting your your license at first? Yeah, I took lessons about three to four years. You know, I I really was intrigued by aerobatics even even as a kid, but I'd never been to an air show. There weren't any air shows in Japan or um, anywhere that I'd been, and... um, but I, I used to ask my dad when I was a kid about aerobatics, and he he would just sort of poo-poo it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we did some loops and rolls and Air Force training, but um, he was more of a big airplane guy. So, um, And after I got my license, I, you know, said, I told my husband I, I really was interested in aerobatics, and but I'd still never seen it done. I just knew that it was what I wanted to do. I, mean, I was one of these kids that was really athletic and hanging on monkey bars and, um, I used to stand on my head, and I had this weird ability to read books upside down. And, uh, <laughs> so, Is that part of the training curriculum? <laughs> you know, it must be. It's just some strange thing that I have. So luckily, I was able to combine flying, aerobatics, and these other sort of little gifts that I had in and uh, pursue it the the way I've been able to pursue it. It's just one of those, you know things, whether it's everything happens for a reason or not, or whether it's coincidental, it just all came together. And, um, but I've always been on the lookout for cool opportunities. So, um, 
So it was a combination of things coming together and making it happen, you know. So we flew to um, we flew to an air show. You know, he knew I was really interested in doing aerobatics, and so we flew to an air show in Canada, and, and I watched my first air show. And uh, just about the time I I I don't think I'm not sure if I'd started taking lessons yet, and um, it was so exciting to see the air show and see the performers interacting with each other and they were all flying different types of planes and some of the performers that were at that show became good friends later on but um you know so when i'm flying an air show i look at all the kids in the crowd or the people and and um and think of myself behind the fence you know thinking i'm on the wrong side of the fence and right i know that um that's where the next air show pilot is going to come from or perhaps just the next aviator yeah, that's the neatest thing about it. In fact, I was showing my my daughter and my son who walked in afterwards um, some of the YouTube videos of you flying, and she was pretty impressed. Oh, you know, thank that, you. That you were up there uh, doing those those maneuvers. You know, that's uh, I want to talk about that because you guys make it look so easy when you're up there. You know, those of us standing on the ground watching, you know, it just seems like this this uh, well, it's just an aerobatic show. But when you look in the the cockpit. Uh, video you guys are working really really hard you know and yeah. and you're not just this is not like somebody driving a race car around the track you're working in the third dimension as well so you flip the the plane over on a knife edge and you got to give it full full rudder right. or a it's bunch really of rudder physical. to keep and it, it, it yeah most airship pilots that fly the really hardcore aerobatics you'll notice they're in pretty good shape you know they're they're athletes and um and and you have to approach um, air shows or air show competition or aerobatic competition as an athlete would. And that's everything from sleep to diet to, you know, regulating your alcohol intake and so on and so forth. Um, and staying in shape. It's, it's really physically pretty brutal when you get to the upper levels of aerobatics. It's, uh, you have to practice all the time and it's really hard. And the, when you take a, when you take a break for even a week, um, you have to get back in the cockpit and, and get your G, G tolerance up. We call it vitamin G. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just, um, you know, you, you take, you have to take some time off, you know, occasionally. And, you know, in the winter, you need, you need some time off. And usually we, we have our planes down for maintenance and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's always a process of about a month to get your G tolerance back. And you just feel cranky and tired after you fly. And, so on and so forth. So I'm um I'm gonna go practice today after we talk, actually. So it's it's a constant it's a constant training regimen. Yeah, no doubt. Well let's talk about G's a little bit. These planes are rated for up to ten G's. What are you typically you know, in an air show uh flight, what are you typically pulling? Do you know? Yeah, I'm usually yeah, yeah, we do know. I um have a G meter and I'm I look at it every flight. Um I pull about ten G's a flight. Wow. Um, but the harder part that, you know, the positive G's where you're pulling back and you're being forced into your seat, that's, you know, it takes some training and some G tolerance to, you know, to be comfortable with it. But, but the negative G's are the most difficult and the things that the, the part that really takes the training and the, you know, conditioning. And that's when you're, say you're upside down and you push. So you're being forced out of the cockpit and it's centripetal force as opposed to centrifugal force. And that's when all the blood goes up into your head and it feels like your eyeballs are going to pop out. And um, and that's the part that's really exhausting and really takes a lot of conditioning. And there's no other way to do it than to be in the cockpit. You know, you, and you can't, lay, you know, hang upside down on an inversion table and hope that it's going to help because it doesn't. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. The only time I really felt it, other than the typical plane taking off off the runway, was uh, a glider ride. You know, we went over the the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in a, an aerobatic glider oh, nice. and we did a a couple of loops, and I I felt that. But I it it may have been three Gs at the most. Yeah. I can't imagine it was very much. But but even that, even feeling that that feeling, it really made me uh, appreciate what you guys do and what uh, military pilots do because it's uh man the stresses on your body is insane it's it is and um and you and you get problems with um you know if the if the plane some of the planes the, the newer planes are very ergonomically um good you know they're they're designed for the pilots so you don't get a lot of you know elbow kind of bursitis you know um things going on and shoulder difficulty and so on but we all have some neck problems because when you're pulling all those g's you have to look you have to look somewhere so as soon as you pull vertical or pull up you can't see anything straight out so you have to look to the left wing and um so you're turning and pulling hard at the same time so your neck gets crunched you know and fighter pilots too and they're look they're looking both ways of course because they're looking for the bogey but um so yeah so you know yoga and massage are my best friends yeah, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> so in aviation, whether it be aerobatic flying or um, just more commuter flying or flying for pleasure, what's a good story about an amazing experience that you've had over your years? Um, boy, I've got a lot of good stories. Uh, I'm sure. I write a column for Plane and Pilot Magazine, and I write a uh, I write it once a month, and um, it's called Let It Roll. And sometimes I just tell – sometimes I write about things I'm thinking about and – Maybe the one I just turned in was about mentors and role models, and uh, or I'll write about experiences and flying my little. I had this little biplane, a Pitts, which I flew across the country when I, you know, back in the mid '80s when I first started getting into this, and I had no radio, no navigation equipment, um, you know, no compass. All I I just had to follow roads. I would read road signs. I'd get down sometimes, you know, low enough to read highway signs. And I learned a lot about navigation, about pilotage, and um, and how not to get lost um, uh, from flying that airplane around the country. And I flew it a long way. I mean, I flew it from I flew it all over the East Coast. I flew it from Texas to California, and flew that particular plane for about a year and a half um, like that. And now that would be harder to do today um, because certain things are required today, like a transponder that you know sends a code out. To fly into certain airspace, and um, but I've I've had a lot of adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the part about flying down low enough just to see, to see street signs. You know, I'd yeah. be traveling up one of the the local highways, and I'll see a helicopter or a plane. You know, just flying down using the the roads below them as navigation. But yeah. never thought much about them actually reading the road signs yeah. from up there. <laughs> yeah, especially when the weather gets bad and you're stuck because you don't have any you know you don't have any instruments to fly in the clouds or anything like that. So. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I never liked the feeling of being. I, ne I never really got lost. You know, there were times, a few minutes here and there, I was a little nervous, but, but I never really got hopelessly lost, and um, I was too afraid to. You know, I hated that that feeling, of, uh, you know, the idea that 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 I might not know where I was. So I found all kinds of ways. You know, there's still arrows on the roofs of buildings in the Midwest that were put there in airmail day, the early airmail days. That would direct pilots toward their air to toward the airport. Really? Yeah. So, um, and there's also big 
um, concrete arrows on the ground, um, mostly out west, I believe, and they were also used for navigation in the early airline days. So there's still these things out there that you can use that, um, you know, that are they've they've lasted. Oh, that's neat. The stuff you you see from the sky that you never knew existed, and unless you get up there in an airplane, yeah, yeah, that's neat. Action cameras evolved quickly and are no longer just for recording your adventures. The new SIOI Iris 4G shares experiences as they happen. The connected camera is built specifically for action sports. It's rugged, wearable, and goes places you won't take your smartphone. The best part? Broadcast from the great outdoors with a simple touch. Your friends can watch live or come back for an instant replay. No downloads, no editing, now that's progress. Visit SIOEYE.com and share your next adventure live. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. The airplane that I won the Nationals in for the first time in 1991 is in the Pioneers of Flight Gallery of the National Air and Space Museum, and it's sitting just behind one of my all-time heroes, Amelia Earhart. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, what a great honor. I can't even begin to describe what that feels like when I go there. So when it comes to aerobatics, um, you know, I've been to a good handful of air shows and I've flown, you know, RC aircraft and, you know, working on aerobatics tricks with them. Um, I was down at the MotoGP, the motorcycle races in Austin, Texas last year. And, and being that I've been to a few air shows, I didn't, this kind of surprised me, but I was looking over to my left and there was a, a stunt pilot uh, out there practicing out in a field. And the guy was just stressing me out. I'm sitting there in a stand, kind of waiting for the race to, to begin. And I'm looking at this guy and he was the first time it's ever really stressed me out. And I'm thinking, you know, is that just because I'm getting older or what? How do you deal with the kind of the, the constant I don't want to say fear, but the, you know, the, the possibilities of something going wrong. You know, um, I never, never have equated airplanes with fear. To me, it's my safe place. And, um, I'm, I'm very comfortable around and in airplanes and with, you know, aviation people and, you know, have been my whole life. I, um, 
but I, you know, it's, air shows are dangerous. There's no question about it. Um, I've lost a lot of friends and, and, uh, anybody in the air show business that's been in it for a while has, um, it's very unforgiving and you learn everything you can, um, about it. You learn from every accident you learn by talking to people and you minimize those risks as much as you can. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a risk that I don't feel like I'm taking a big risk, but, um, I fly very good equipment. I practice a lot. I, I feel like my air show is very safe, but of course things can be out of your control. Um, so, but it's, you know, it's not enough to stop me from doing what I love to do, of course. And, um, I, I think it's something that you think about on the ground when you get in the cockpit, you can't think about it. If you, if you do, it's paralyzing and, um, it takes your mind off what you're supposed to be doing. So, you know, most of the time when I'm doing aerobatics, it's just beautiful. You just had this really, this feeling of joy and I have a feeling of, of being very centered and very focused. Um, I'm really just thinking about what's going on. Um, I mean about, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm thinking about what's going on. I'm really just part, you know, there in the moment. But you, right. you know, you have to keep the big picture in sight, but and the small details in sight as well. So you have to see the forest and the trees. You know, you have to monitor your instruments, but um, but it's it's really all about training and um, and of course keeping your equipment up and staying in shape and and approaching it in a very methodical, professional manner. Um, so. Yeah, I was going to say, I think like anything, it's it's about the training. If you've gone through all the training and you're fully confident that you've put in the, the hours that it, that are needed, then you can feel comfortable about that. I, I, I right. suspect most of the, the accidents are more pilot error yeah. uh, than they are mechanical failure. They are, you know, most, most aviation accidents, probably 80 plus 80 something percent are pilot error. Um, so we're still the weakest link in there. Engines have gotten very reliable. The airplanes are very strong. And, you know, if you have confidence in your own abilities, you know that you've done the training, you know you've put the time in it, and you're feeling good, and you have confidence in your airplane and the general maintenance of it and the type of plane you're flying, then, then, um, then it's a good feeling. So aside from your first crash <laughs> up in Alaska. <laughs> I wasn't flying. Um, <laughs> yeah, your first crash experience. Yes. How's that? Crash experience. Um, I've never crashed a plane. Uh, you know, I've had incidents. You know, I've dinged props and things like that, but I've never yeah. had. A, I've never crashed a plane myself. Well, that's a good thing. Well, I was going to say, what is uh, what is a moment? There must have been a moment when you it just really got your heart rate up that you said, "Ooh, you know, that got my attention." Yeah, it's funny. I just read an article about it because um, people always ask me that. You know, they in different ways. You know, haven't you ever been afraid? Haven't you, you know, have you had any close calls? And, you know, of course I've been afraid. Um, and of course I've had some, you know, relatively close calls, but, um, you know, I, I've done things where I've gotten too close to another airplane when I'm doing a photo shoot, for example, and it takes you back and you have to think about it. You know, like, what am I doing? Um, and there was one season I did that twice early in the year doing, um, you know, got too close to other airplanes. I, and I thought about it a lot. I, I thought, you know, my being, there's two things in aviation that can get you and that they talk about a lot, which are complacency and overconfidence. And I thought, am I being complacent? Am I being overconfident? What is it? And I talked to some friends about it and, you know, and I, um, and I came to the conclusion that I was overconfident. 
um, that I wasn't being complacent. You know, I'd done everything I was supposed to be doing. I, I, I took it seriously, but I, I was feeling like I was really pretty good. And, um, when you start thinking you're good at this business or any business where there's a lot of risk, then that's when, that's when you get in trouble. And, um, so I, I try and keep that in mind. Um, and I've had other, um, incidences at air shows where I've gotten too low, um, and had to really take a step back and think about what I was doing and why I was doing that. And, you know, why I, why perhaps I lost focus, um, which is usually what that is. Either you lose focus, you know, mentally your, your mind isn't there. You're thinking about something else. And that happened to me. I was going through a divorce and I was, I, um, completely lost focus and I got really low. I had about one more turn left before I was going to hit something. And, um, it really scared me. It really, uh, was a big wake up call that either I had to, um, quit for the time being, you know, take a break, um, or put the other stuff aside. So I didn't want to take a break. So I resolved the divorce fairly quickly and, um, continued, but was, you know, more careful. So, um, there are a lot of wake up calls and you have to listen to them and you have to listen to everything, you know, like that. But when, when you do have, you know, things happen, you have a, you, you blow a cylinder in your plane and you have to land pretty quickly or, you know, you do something wrong. It's at the time, the feeling, there are different kinds of feelings that you get. Um, you can get, you can just freeze. You you know, I've had, I've had other incidences where I've had control jams where the controls were jammed by something in the cock, something in the plane. Um, you just react the way that you've trained for it. So the more you can train for unexpected things, things that can happen, the better, you know, the, the quicker you're going to react, you're going to act like you've trained, you know, you're going to react like you've trained, you're going to, you're going to fly like you've trained. Um, so that's very important. But in my experience, you don't have a physical reaction to those kind of things until after, after you react to it. And then your knees might start shaking, your hands will start shaking, or you're just, you know, you're kind of overwhelmed by the situation. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, in the moment you have your wits about you, you yeah. can control the situation. That and or, if you don't, that's, you know, then you're really in trouble, but you know. Right. Sometimes you don't know until something happens how you're going to react. So um, I had a really close call fairly early on when I was training, and I got in. I I purposely put the plane in an inverted flat spin, which is a spin. Um, you get the plane slow, um, just slower than the stall speed, and the plane stalls. You go into a spin where it's rotating. It's an auto rotation toward the ground, and but if you had power, you can flatten it out. Um, and opposite aileron flattens it out. So you can get the plane really flat. And, um, it's, you know, people have done them for years. They used to do more in air shows, but they take a lot of, they use a lot of altitude. So people don't do them as much. But, um, but I was doing an inverted flat spin and, and, um, it didn't come out. And I was getting lower and lower. And I was, you know, I was moving the stick. I was trying to, trying to recover. And, and then I used, I had trained for this emergency spin recovery, um, and I'd taken a num- like about five hours of training in this before I before I started doing it, um, flying this particular airplane. And um, it the training came to me. I heard my instructor's voice tell me, "Power off, take your hands off the stick, full opposite rudder." And you know, I recovered pretty low. Um, and when I came into land, I, I kind of the landing wasn't set up right, so I came back around and 
landed the second time. And when I got out of the plane, you know, my, my hands were shaking and, you know, I put the plane away and walked away for the day. But, um, but I did react, you know, that was probably my first really, really frightening moment. And, um, I reacted like I trained. So once you, once you've, I guess my point is once you've experienced something like that, you know, you know that you will react like you train and you know that you're going to do the right thing. You're not going to freeze up. And so it's, it's good to have the first one out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the, the training, training, training and don't get overconfidence. Uh, those are, that's definitely the, the two things to remember. I ride motorcycles and they always say the, the most dangerous time for a motorcyclist is about five years into it. You know, because when you're, when you're a newbie, you know, you're, you're, aware of things you're right. hyper aware but then you get comfortable and confident and you think i got this and that's when that's the when it happens happen. that's so, exactly right i see that with air show pilots all the time i'll bet i'll bet yeah so a matter of uh just always being open to realize that you are constantly learning new things that you don't know at all and that that'll take you you know forever obviously in your career yeah and you just have to stay humble in anything that you do yeah absolutely well, let's talk about the aircraft that you fly in the in the shows. This is an extra 300S that you're flying these days, right? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm now flying a 300LX, which is actually a two seater, um, and it has more more power and more. Um, well, it doesn't it has more performance than my single seat 300S. It's a it's a newer version of the extra. It's it's just fabulous. It's got some refinements, um, new ailerons, and um, just an amazing airplane. So that's what I'm flying in air shows right now. But it's it's another extra. I've been flying extras for a long time. Yeah, those are amazing planes. You're talking about the inverted flat spin, and I would have thought that just the power to weight ratio on these things that you could simply power out of a flat spin. But that's it's still not even the case, even with the power that these things have, huh? No, you really need to pull the power back and and reduce the power to get the nose down and get it out of the flat spin. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they have a lot of power and they're so refined. There's so many, you know, there's so many refinements that they've made over the years just in the design of the wing and, you know, the ailerons and just little things that are hard to even notice at first glance. But the planes are so, are so strong and so well built. You know, they're built in Germany and then shipped over to St. Augustine, where I live, um, to Southeast Aero, which is the dealer. And then they reassemble them and then they go to their owners from here. Um, but they're, and what's also interesting about the Extra Aircraft Company is that Walter Extra is the designer of these planes. He's also an aerobatic pilot, and he's been the designer since the beginning. He came out with the first production uh, monoplane, single-seat monoplane, in about 1987, six or seven, and um, and then is is still designing these airplanes. So he has... He has been with it since, you know, since the beginning of May. And so he's constantly thinking about ways to improve the performance, ways to, you know, he, he went from a wood wing, a wooden fabric airplane to basically mostly all composite airplane that, that we're flying now. So he's he's been with it right from the beginning, which I think is really interesting because you don't see that with a lot of designs and a lot of airplanes. Yeah, it's definitely a history you can uh, be confident in when you're up there yeah. being the person tumbling around in the sky and the thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I saw a, a video of you flying inverted up uh, above the runway, and I think they were holding a ribbon right. uh, 18 feet off the, the runway. Yeah. Tell, explain that experience a little bit, because 18 feet might seem 
high when you're standing on the ground and you don't have your life on the line. But 18 feet off the runway, inverted at 200-some miles an hour, uh, that's got to be pretty nerve-wracking. Well, it's it's a funny thing. That's called an inverted ribbon cut, and it's it's, it's really 22 feet, so I have to add four feet. Um but it's so we get poles and we string ribbons and you know string crepe paper whatever um, between them, and then we have people hold them on the runway. And um, it's an old air show trick. It was first done probably I'm not sure when it was first done. Um, I should know that. Possibly in the 30s. Probably when they shouldn't have been doing it. <laughs> no kidding, because the engines weren't very reliable back then. Um, right. But when they crashed, the planes were slower. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good. So point. they survived the more. The um, yeah. So the old bird of ribbon cut. It's kind of a trick. It was kind of a trick, I think, to bring people, bring the freeloaders into the gate. I think that's why they first started doing it. So you know, people outside the gate, they don't want to pay. And we still see that. I see freeloaders outside air shows all the time. They don't want to pay the ten. You know, air shows are cheap. I mean, it's ten bucks, twelve bucks. Right. <clears throat> they don't want to pay the ten bucks, so they sit outside in their cars and watch the show from outside the gates. So what the air shows, what the old barnstormers used to do is do something on the ground. They do a ground act. They'd have somebody down there, you know, some kind of crazy Batman clown guy or, or a car, which they do today. They use um, jet trucks or the, or a ribbon cut. And so people couldn't see it outside the gate. You have to be pretty close to the fence to see it. So I think that's how some of these uh, lower level things started. But so what we do is we um, we come down and sometimes you fly under the ribbon upright and you come back around and you cut it with your prop. Um, and so I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and uh, but it's always it's always exciting. The first time I did it, I thought that's just the weirdest thing I've ever done. Um, but I've been doing it ever since. So, <laughs> you know, it's not nerve wracking, but it's something that you definitely take seriously, especially when it's really windy. Uh, it's gusty, that kind of thing. And I've flown in all kinds of conditions, high altitudes, windy, that kind of, you know, in Colorado, um, do, doing it. I think the last show I flew was up at Jeffco in yeah. Colorado and I, I flew, did the ribbon cut there. It's, um, it's something that you have to respect. It's, you know. Yeah, I imagine that moment you're just, I mean, there is nothing on your mind other than that, you know, those those few inches that oh, your yeah. plane might be moving up and down at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have string on either side that's a, at least one, as one wingspan on either side, so I have some room in there to move. But uh, the way I, I make the ribbon is I put bright crepe paper, um, a big glob of it sort of toward the center, and then I put one, I put a color red the only thing I can really see is that red crepe paper when I'm a few hundred yards away from it until I get fairly close to it. So I'm coming in inverted. Now, we briefed exactly where the center of the ribbon is going to be, so I color code that. And then it's either on, say, runway edge where there's a very straight line or maybe on the center line where there's some, something straight that I can follow. And I follow that down, and when I see the red, I know exactly what I'm going to go for. And then I have um, a wingspan on either side, which is about 25 feet on either side. Okay. All right. Oh, uh, that sounds great. Yeah. So what would you say your favorite uh, aerobatic maneuver is this these days? You know, I really like the precision of all the maneuvers. So I, you know, I, I like to go up and do the air shows, the yeah, tumbling and, you know, end over end and doing all these, you know, kind of cool air show maneuvers. But, but what I really love is just doing everything really well. Like I want to make, I want to do a perfect hammerhead. 
and a perfect loop, that kind of thing. And um, so putting all those things together in a routine is always a challenge. If you change one maneuver, it affects the energy management of the next maneuver. So you're always, you know, tweaking things to make it a little bit better. And so I like all of it. I, I like doing the rolling turns, which is where you're turning and rolling at the same time. And you can do those um, pulling up in, in kind of a loop or you can do them horizontal. And it's really a challenge because you have to really have to have a lot of situational awareness. You always have to be looking ahead of where you're going to find that point on the horizon that you're aiming for. So it's it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, those are the ones that always blew me away. Those in the uh, like the eight point barrel rolls because you're like you said the precision that has to go into it is you know it, again it's in three dimensions yeah. you know so you're not only uh, you're not only turning the aircraft you're you're also stabilizing it with the you know with the the tail rudder to to keep it in that position while you're you're not parallel to the ground right. through all eight points of that turn. It was always impressive. Uh, again, you make it look easy, but I know, I mean, I think I know how difficult that must be. A big part of aerobatics and, you know, what I find teaching people is teaching them where to look on the horizon and where to look on the wing for cues. So you're always looking at something to side off, whether it's something, it's usually something in the distance on the horizon. Um, and what's well, always something in the distance on the horizon. And then where do you look, you know, to, to know that you're going straight and, so you always have to be looking ahead. And, and what I find a lot of pilots, when they come and fly with us at the school, they, they're they so used to looking inside at their instruments. They're not used to looking outside at all. So so you, you have to really work with them on getting in these exercises to get them to look outside the plane and look ahead of where they're going, which is a big part of aerobatics. Right, right. Well, obviously, these uh, these years of aerobatic flying have, have made you um, – you know, someone who has the ability to to teach us to newcomers. So let's talk about your your school a little bit. A little bit. It's the uh, Petty Wagstaff School of Aerobatics. Yeah, or Aerobatic School. I have different names for it, but okay. <laughs> and this is down in Saint Augustine. It's in Saint like Augustine, which is where the extra dealership is. So we're we have an office in one of their hangars, and it's just perfect because everybody that comes through through town to buy an extra or to pick one up comes through here, and it's really fun to see everybody. Um, so it's a great location. Plus we have great weather here and, uh, you know, we're right off the coast and it's pretty. And so, uh, it's a fun place for people to come no matter what. Um, but yeah, I started about two years ago and I didn't have any clue where it was going to go. I just decided one day it was time. I had this, uh, I had the opportunity to, to get a two seat airplane that, that we use and a friend of mine, um, um, sold to me and, and, um, I had a student that right about that time I had a student that really wanted to come over and train with me from Italy, um, who's since done really well in competition over there. And so it all came together. Um, and I had no idea where it was going to go. I'm like, I'm just going to jump into it. If I think about all the details and everything, I'll never do it. You know, I'm, I'm more like, let's see the big picture and then we'll, the details will follow and we can, we can do this. So, um, it's been really fun. Um, and it's, it's been more fun than I ever thought it would be. We get the best students, the most interesting people from all over the world. And, um, it's just great. So, um, we teach, we teach basic aerobatics, advanced aerobatics. I can do coaching for unlimited aerobatic people. And then we have, we have a core, we've got a one day course, two day course, five day course, that kind of thing. 
and um, and then we can do a la carte training depending on the person if they're if they're more advanced, and um, and really this kind of flying really makes people a lot safer pilots overall. So um, yeah, yeah it's it's good. I, I you know our one day course we call a confidence course. So our goals are to give people more confidence and more skill, and and really to give them you know to help them get more enjoyment out of their flying because when when you're only flying inside a very small envelope and you're afraid to do any, you know, a steep turn or you're afraid to do anything, you're not, I don't think you're really enjoying it. I think you must be feeling kind of tense. So we teach people to open that envelope up and, and really learn about their airplanes and really know how to use their rudders and things like that. And hopefully, you know, help them really enjoy their flying more. So... House of Motorrad is Colorado's original adventure motorcycle rental company. From their top-of-the-line fleet of rental motorcycles like BMW, KTM, Triumph, and Yamaha to their expert service shop, they are your one-stop shop for all of your motorcycle needs. Servicing all makes and models from tire changes to engine rebuilds, House of Motorrad will take care of you and get you on the road. Visit www.houseofmotorrad.com to check out their selection of parts and accessories or call them at 720-466-0047. At House of Motorrad, your adventure awaits you. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. Please give a big welcome to Miss Patty Wagstaff! Watch for the nose to come up. In the extra 230, that airplane is hanging in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum next to Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Vega. A quick hammerhead stall turnaround puts Patty in position for her first set of maneuvers. She will experience some eight times the pull of gravity and roll the airplane consistently throughout her show. Imagine you get people that don't necessarily aim to be an aerobatics pilot, but are just looking for more um, precise or honed-in training. Exactly. In the the motorcycle world, we would go to a track day, you know, to learn more about the the dynamics of the the turn and that. So I imagine you get those people, too, and these are not just students looking to be, uh, you know, future competitors. Most people aren't, and we don't, you know, we don't... um you know, push them in that direction at all. And most people, you know, they'll fly, they fly a Cessna or a Cirrus, something like that. And they, they come here to become a better pilot. And a lot of that is called upset training. Um, you know, aerobatic sounds like too much fun. So they teach, uh, so we teach upset training too. And, uh, but the corporations and airlines all, all are talking about upset training for loss of control. You know, if you get into bad turbulence and, and, you know, you get in a situation, 
where the plane's not in its normal regime, flying straight and level, then how do you recover from that? So that's what most people come here wanting to learn, um, you know, and also to gain confidence. And a lot of people, most people also want to experience a roll in a loop and a spin. But um, but we do teach them how to recover from unforeseen events. Um, and but it's but what happens with a lot of the people is that they they really fall in love with it, and so they want to continue. And sometimes they go off and compete, or they buy an aerobatic plane, and they and they realize how much fun it really is. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, yeah. Well, you can find Patty Wagstaff's uh, school at pattywagstaff.com, uh, her site there with uh, with all of her information, and the school is there as well. And the other thing on that site is the schedule of your upcoming shows. You're not done performing uh, its shows. And I was looking at your schedule. It looks like you have uh, one coming up here just in about another month. Yeah, I've got – About um, when this podcast airs, a couple weeks. I've got the Dayton Air Show coming up, and I'm going to be flying a different airplane than the extra in that one. I'm going to be flying a Tucano, which is a Brazilian turboprop. It's a um, trainer, and it's a light attack aircraft, and um, it's a really fun airplane to fly. So I'm going to fly that there. And then my next show is the big air show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is um, every year they have they've had this for years. Every year it's probably it's a huge air show. Twelve thousand airplanes fly in that week. It's a week long event. It's really anybody that knows aviation knows Oshkosh. So right. we'll fly there, and then I, and then I have a number of shows this fall as well. So yeah, Oshkosh has been one on my my bucket list. I've not made it out there yet. Oh, you'd one love of these it. days I'm going to go see it. Yeah, it just seems amazing. It's it is amazing. It's really a nice event. You know, it's just, it's incredible. You can get that many people and there's so much to do and there's concerts and, you know, with really good artists, there's camp, you know, a lot of people camp under their wings. Um, there's kids things. I mean, there's just everything to do there. And and then you leave, you, you walk around the grounds and everybody's very nice and it's clean. you never see a spot of trash on the ground. Aviation people are really, you know, they really uh, understand that. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, that's a that's like the Super Bowl in that community. <laughs> that's the one to go to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, go check out pattywagstaff.com. You can see her on Facebook at Pwas. It's P W A S one. Uh, Instagram at Patty Aerobatics and Twitter at Perry or Patty Aerobatics. And she's got a lot of great photos and videos up there. So very cool stuff if you're into aviation to uh, to see what Patty's uh, been up to and what she will be up to in the future. So um, you also wrote a book at one point. Uh, the book was Fire and Air, yeah. Life on the Edge. What was um, that all about? You know, that was a really long time ago now. I mean, that's going on 20 years. And, <laughs> um, you know, there were a couple of people that wanted to tell my story. And so I wrote it with a co-author. I wanted to do it myself. And I would do it really differently today. I would use more pictures and I'd, I'd probably make the chapters shorter. And I'm actually working on a new book. So, um, but it was just a story of how I, you know, got to where I was and, um, and so on. So, um, I don't really promote the book because it's, it's been out of print for a while. And, um, and I feel like so much has happened since then, you know, so, um, but I'll come out with another one. <laughs> well, good. Well, you have to let us know when you do. I'd love to have you back on the show and, uh, Thank you. and talk about Thanks. that for sure. <laughs> So I wanted to know, how many planes at this point are you certified on? You have quite a growing list at this point. Um, 
You know, there's a lot of planes that you don't have to have, have to have a special rating to fly. So, but I've flown a lot of different airplanes, and I have maybe five or six type ratings. Um, and my type ratings are really odd. You know, like I think you know, corporate pilots and airline, you know, pilots have a lot of type ratings, but it might be on various Citations or Gulf Streams or jets. And mine are kind of all over the place, like a BD five jet. You know, the smallest jet in the world. Um, the L-39, the Czech trainer, um, Czech jet trainer, um, the Tucano, and what else do I have? A TBM Avenger, which is a, uh, you know, the World War II torpedo bomber. Right. And a T-28 trainer, kind of 50s, 60s era, um, big radial engine, uh, two-seater. Um, so I've got kind of a strange, you know, array of type ratings, but, uh, but that's what I'm all about, <laughs> flying interesting airplanes. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, you even have a, you have a helicopter license yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I've flown heli- I love flying helicopters. They're, they're really fun. So I've got I always thought days. it would be neat to make a career out of that. Yeah. That's, uh, they've always fascinated me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that BD, did you call it a BD-35, that, the little micro jet? Yeah, the micro jet, BD-5. BD-5. Yeah. I saw some, I, and I, I don't know if it was a BD-5 specifically, but we were going through the canyons at Moab and uh, just driving down the road, minding our own business, and all of a sudden this jet comes rocketing past us down inside the canyon, flying above the, the Green River. Really? Was and, it a uh, tiny little jet? Yeah, and it, it must have been one of these things because it's about the only thing that's maneuverable enough to be down inside the canyon. And he, wow. I mean, he looked like he was going to crash into the to the canyon wall in front of us. He just banked left and took off out of there, and he was just flying down inside the canyon. It was amazing. Really? And was anybody filming him? Was it for a shoot? Not that I could see. I think he was just out there for kicks. There were I didn't f- see any signs of any film crew anywhere or another followed chase jet or anything. And like it was that. a civilian jet. Yeah, I'm guessing. I mean, <laughs> like I said, it was so fast when it went by, you know, it just, it scared us, you know, it was all of this Wow, that's cool. Sound. I wonder what it was. <laughs> it was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> was it me? So, no, I don't think it was. I would love to do what, that. I said, was it me? I would love to do that. I don't know. Maybe that's why I bring it up. I want to know who's flying <laughs> the thing, you know? I think they were just out having some fun yeah. and figure that spook some people going down the road and it sure did because it was a quiet day and all of a sudden this rocketing jet noise comes flying by us and it was one of those things like this is so out of place i can't even imagine what happened and just out of the front windshield we see him bank you know off to the left as the highway turned. it might have been a uh, f-16 from hill air force base in um outside of salt lake it could have been but i i really you know knowing jets it was a tiny little white thing i, I don't oh, think it was military it's white it was, yeah it was pretty and I had seen the little micro jets. I think uh, really Pepsi small. or one of the cola companies would run them at the air shows before. And yeah, there's tiny, tiny. The buy the man just barely fit in the thing. Yeah, but yeah. I think it was one of those. So I don't know. Wow, <laughs> that is cool. So since you're an instructor um, running the school, maybe we should wrap up with some good advice for students that either want to get into aviation or those who want to progress in the field. Well, I think it's really important to learn the right way early on because there's a thing in education called the law of primacy, and it states that the things that you learn first really stick with you, and they're the most vivid in your brain, and 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 so it's really important to de- to develop good habits early on, and you know it's much harder to fix bad habits than it is to develop good ones. So I would say make sure that you feel that you're getting the best training. Um, 
you know, you might like your instructor, but, you know, you know, check around, read everything you can, read aviation magazines, read books. Um, I'm, I'm always surprised at the, when I meet pilots who don't read aviation magazines or books, you know, I'm like, it's, you know, you don't have to be in a vacuum. There's a lot to learn from other people. So, um, you know, do everything you can to learn the right way early on and take aerobatic lessons early on too. We get student pilots quite often, um, or just brand new private pilots, um, who come and learn, learn how to do this stuff. So, um, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like I said, alluding back to motorcycles is the same way. If you're not constantly learning and reading and trying to better yourself out there, especially when safety and your life are on the line, then, you know, maybe you're not in the in the right hobby. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And and you know, we tell pilots to keep keep going for a rating. There's always something new you can do in aviation, whether it's getting a seaplane rating or getting if you're a private pilot, getting a commercial rating or an instrument rating and and it's really good for you to – it keeps your mind active and it keeps you learning. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very well put. Well, Patty, thanks very much for joining me on the show today. I uh, I could turn this into a three-part episode easily. Um, I love aviation. It's always fascinated me, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm enamored uh, about to see what you've done in your career and to watch you uh, progress into the future as well with training and future shows. So. Definitely appreciate your time coming on. Thank you so much. You've really done your research. You had all your facts just right. <laughs> so <laughs> <Almost>. thanks. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. Still learning, right? <laughs> well, to all of our listeners, until the next episode, get out there and definitely try something new and try something out of your comfort zone because that is adventure. Patty, enjoy and have a good day and have a safe flight today. Thanks, Travis. All right. Thank you. Bye.